Hello and welcome to the writer's story. I'm Kristen. And I'm Meredith. And um, yes, we're here. It's September. Um, it's a September that's um, sort of weirdly familiar, but also um, strange and different. Um, I always get super inspired to start something and write and everything as the weather gets cooler. But at the same time, my you know high school student is going to school in his bedroom. And um, things are not normal. <laughs> Boy, you so. can say that again. And it has been hot here. But the, but the temperature is finally broken. We're into a little bit of fall feel. Yep. Yep. And that's been great. Um, but speaking of new projects, you have started something new. I have. I am um, working on a new novel. And I have spent some time, more time than I've ever done before, on thinking ahead about plot points and kind of general tenor, a little more detail about characters. I'm prepared for all of this to change as it goes along. But now I've just started um, getting the words down, laying bricks, as I like to say. And Meredith, you are on the other end of the drafting spectrum. Yes, and um, I always have this these insights at this time because I think when I'm in a close edit or at this level of editing, um, things start to occur to me. And I think to myself, oh my God, you could have saved so much time if you had just thought of this six months ago. But I realize that's part of the process. And I think it's having patience with yourself and understanding that you have to write the whole book and you have to think about the book before you can get to the end. So I think that that's where I am right now. Um, and I've been doing a lot of what I like to do, which might be a, a way to, to, um, to occupy myself instead of revising, but is also, I think, sometimes really useful, and that's looking at it from different perspectives. So I've been listening to a bunch of podcasts and reading um, some interesting books, um, and one I was just reading talked a lot about character flaw as a way to look at how characters <clears throat> Are integral to your plot and that was just somehow I was on a walk and it just somehow sparked something for me and got me understanding how to deepen the plot around my characters so if your characters have a flaw that's really the issue that is preventing them um, from getting what they want or desire and that was the other thing one of the other podcasts was talking a lot about how you shouldn't say what they want, but what they desire. And Interesting. What, how did they distinguish those two, want and desire? Well, because they said want is, is, is like, so maybe what I want is to become a New York Times bestseller. So that's my goal. Like I'm writing a book and I say to everyone, my goal has always been to be a New York Times bestseller. But if you get beyond that, my desire is to be admired 
and to make a lot of money off of my rent. So like, what, and then when you get beyond that, and so why, why am I, what is that desire about? It's about that I don't feel loved enough, that I, you know, whatever. If you can get back into the, into the psychology of the character, you're going to get much more complex than having a very, um, so desire is more surface, a surface goal. I think they're talking yeah. about goals. Yeah. So I can have a goal, but it really may have nothing to do with what I actually desire. And it's easy with a goal to be, I think, too, um, I think you can often be too general. And abstract, maybe. But emotion, I think desire maybe has more emotional resonance yeah. from what I'm hearing. Yeah, you. but I think it sometimes so. is one of those things where I often feel like maybe it's splitting hairs, but it's about sort of adjusting the way you look at your story so that you see something a little bit differently and maybe are able to go a little bit deeper. But, uh, you know, what? You know, they were just talking about, um, I, know, what was I? I was listening to Will Storr, I believe, who took a lot with neuroscience and storytelling, which I thought was really, really fascinating. And he was talking about character flaws <clears throat> and how you, if you, to describe a character, you know, that you, if you, if you had a character flaw, you would just go that much deeper into the character and you would be able to see how they see the world. And so his example was interesting because he was talking about someone describing Theresa May, who was not a fictional character. <laughs> <laughs> but they said her problem and presumably why Brexit fell apart or it's, it's such an issue. Her problem is she always thinks she's the only adult in the room. Interesting. And he thought, oh, wow, that's a great character flaw because now with that sort of info, you can put her into all sorts of situations and realize like she's not going to get stuff done because she's talking to other people all the time. Like, she assumes that they don't know what they're doing, and they're not going to be... So anyway, I, I just thought that was a really interesting example. Yeah, so mining a character flaw for um, obstacle to desire. I mean, thinking about flaw in relation to desire has, yeah, a, a richness of possibility for the drama and dramatic tension. And, um, yeah, and again, I think the emotional resonance is rich. Right, and then also, I think you also have a chance to dig a little deeper. So if my goal, as I was going back to my original imagining me as being this one-dimensional goal person, but if my goal was to be a New York Times bestseller, but my desire is, I don't know, for my parents to, um, my parents to see that I've made it or accept that, you know, accept my success or whatever, that could be a bit deeper but if I'm writing that character and I say, I want to be a New York Times bestseller because I want to be rich, I think suddenly the emotional resonance is gone. So you, I think you have to be also looking to see. Yes. What does that tell you about this person? If all I want to do is be rich, first of all, why am I a writer? Because there's <laughs> Not the path to, to fortune for most of <laughs> Wall Street. Um, yeah, so... Uh, so, but you know what I mean? So now I seem, seem a little dumb. <laughs> um, and also, 
if my desire is to be rich and to do it through writing, I'm probably going to be very disappointed in the story that you're writing. <laughs> so I think it just, I think it's just about, yeah, I think it's like sort of, to me, it's about looking at things from a different angle. And, um, and I'm now in that point where I'm not sitting there and imagining the story from scratch, but kind of understanding what is there and then deepening that and making um, better connections. Yeah. So did you um, start identifying and working with the flaw in your character after you had already created a draft, or is that something that you have landed on earlier or partway through? I think the flaw is just something I've been thinking about for the last couple of days. Mm -hmm. um, but I think um, the desire was something that I really did um, try to dig into a little bit. Um, and then also to understand what the obstacles were. So, you know, I had this, um, yeah, I think it's just, it's, and I don't even want to go all the specifics exactly, but because it doesn't make sense, um, you know, to someone who's not like, you know, up to their elbows in my book at the moment. But I think that all along I've been trying to set up these two characters that are flawed and are stuck. And so, but in order to have a relationship with one another, they both have to become unstuck with a lot of what their worldview is and also how they see the world. And so I think that's been helping me sort of dig at that even even more. And then I sort of had this realization a couple days ago that I kept saying this whole thing about guns, 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 and then I realized really what it is is survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. And that allowed me to go much deeper into the ideas in, in the story. So, um, you know, and I and I may I may do a little bit more um, psychological research on this, but I, I know that it's quite common with veterans. Um, if you are in a firefight, why didn't I get shot? Did I not do enough to protect somebody? Um, and then for someone in a mass shooting, you know, a lot of guilt over surviving, being the one to survive. Yeah. Sort of what's the point of that? So that that was really really helpful for me. And trying to deepen the emotion. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you're um, making some wonderful strides in deepening and clarifying the story in this uh, revision process. I'm um, finding myself having in this very beginning drafting stage of telling my bracket. I put, I use the brackets to tell me um, when I come back to edit something or another. And sometimes I say, for instance, I realized that I don't know how a person could completely lose a trust fund like overnight. <laughs> so I have to ask people, I have to ask those people who do go into professions that can make money, who know about money, how a person can do this. So I bracket that and then just move on. I'm like, okay, just presuming this happened. 
move on to the next. It, it can scene. happen. It can happen. I'm <laughs> sure it can. I just have to ask somebody who knows about trust funds, and that is do not me. <laughs> do you write in Word? I do, yeah. Okay. Because I write in Scrivener, and it allows you to make notes to yourself. Yeah, I have other friends who use Scrivener. We should um, we should ask our guest when we get Meg Medina on. Um, yes. What yes. if she uses? What she uses? I'm <laughs> a huge I'm a huge Scrivener fan fan just because it um, it it acts more the way I think. Yeah, you can write, you can write out of order. You can order things into. So it's, so it's like it's like you're able to have it on the floor and move paper around, <laughs> yeah. but in a computer. Yeah, and that makes that made no sense at all. But I hopefully everyone understood what I meant. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> you can go down to index cards. When I when I started off in screenwriting, everyone wanted you to do an index card summary of every scene, and then you're supposed to lay it out on the floor and then move stuff around. And yeah. I hope, you know, and it's, but it's not good if it, someone has pets. <laughs> yeah. Or small children. Or small children. Yeah, or well, an already messy office as I do. I know people put things up on their walls and tack things. I'm like, wow, I really need some more wall space around here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, a whiteboard. Well, I um, hope to finally stop saying that I'm revising this book and be done with it and say that I'm off pursuing a shiny new project next month, but we'll see. Um, but um, I'm super excited to welcome um, a guest this month. Yes. So She's you know quite well. Yes, she is a good, good friend. We are absolutely delighted to have with us today Meg Medina. Meg is an award-winning New York Times best-selling author of books for young readers. She writes picture books as well as middle grade and young adult fiction. Meg has won the great big Newbery Medal for her Mercy Suarez Changes Gears. We're super excited to talk with her about that. She's also written a number of other very highly acclaimed books. Burn Baby Burn, Yaki Delgado Wants to Kick Your Ass, The Girl Who Could Silence the Wind, Mango Abuela and Me, Tia Isa Wants a Car. She's an amazing writer, um, has covered lots of different topics. We can't wait to talk with her about at least some of them. Meg serves on the National Board of Advisors for the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, and she is a faculty member of Hamlin University's Master of Fine Arts in Children's Literature. I know that Meg is a longtime advocate of uh, bringing great books to young readers, in particular girls, and um, no matter what their otherwise reading inclinations, she inspires and um, gets folks excited about reading. So we're excited to have Meg with us. So um, let's give her a call. Well, Meg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always exciting to see you, Kristen. Likewise. Yeah. So um, Meredith and I had a little bit of a chance to catch up some, but um, how are you? How are you faring on this September in Virginia? Well, you know, I, <laughs> the, the truth is I just, um, I had a, a really awful summer 
My aunt died this summer after many years of being her caretaker. And although she didn't die of COVID, she, you know, died as a result, I think, of many of the isolation factors that have come with, with the closing of nursing homes and so on. So, you know, there is the emotional loss of, of my aunt and really the last of my elder. And then the process, anyone who's had to, to walk through this knows just the process of, you know, paperwork afterward and so on. So my family and I, Javier and, and my two daughters, we went to the beach for a week. We found the most secluded beach we could and we sat in the house and, and went to the ocean. Those were the two, you know, you were either in the living room or you were at the ocean. Um, and I read, I read and I read and I read with my feet in the water and I walked and um, I didn't watch a single bit of television. I didn't look at my phone. I didn't engage with anything. And, you know, I came back feeling a lot better. Wow. Refreshed. Sometimes, you know, you have to just step off. Yeah. Get your bearings again. That sounds like a wonderful break. Yeah. And a much-needed one. Yeah. It is so hard um, to lose someone right now. I have a good friend of the family and um when her husband died she keeps saying i want to have a memorial service where everyone can travel and everyone can hug each other and so she's kind of waiting for it and i feel like her sort of um you know her grief is gonna continue until she gets that closure and i just don't know when she can have that no one can and that that's that gives way to more grief i mean it's just I feel like 2020 for me, in so many ways, and for the whole country really, was just like the year of loss. It's a loss of um, a faith in our leaders, a loss of life, a loss of our comfort. Um, a loss sometimes I feel like our peace, like our peace of mind, our, our ability to get calm and joyful, right? Because there's just so much coming at us. Um, and and it's just been, it's been a horrifying year in so many ways, just to, to bear witness to. So, uh, you know, when I think back on 2020, I think that's the word that's going to come to me. Um, it's been a year of loss. And I, I'm really hoping that 2021 won't get too far underway before things start to look up, but, um, yeah, I think this is, it's been a tough, it's been a tough year to, to feel hopeful and full of light, which, you know, are two things that you pretty much need to write for children. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been tricky. I guess that was my question, like, how have you, how have you been doing writing during the pandemic, is that, I mean, I imagine you're under deadlines and stuff. It's not like you could be just like, well, um, you know, I'll take 10 right. months off. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I adjusted some things. So I did, you know, my writing life includes, of course, writing fiction, but then it, there's all this other stuff, you know, writing presentations and writing papers. I, I teach students at Hamlin, so, you know, reading and responding and writing with them. So on the days when I really can't find uh, the peace and the joy that I need for a picture book or um, 
or the novel I'm working on, I will turn to those things. Those tasks have to get done anyway, right? So I just sort of push them to the front, and I do what I can. And, and that's, I think, all we can ask of ourselves, right? You can, you can do what you can. I don't want to stay in bed with the covers on me, right? I have to get up. I have to get moving. I have to write. But um, I try to do that. Then the other paradox is this, that sometimes, especially early on in the pandemic, before it really started to sink in how long this was going to be, <laughs> but at, in the beginning, I like, I, I, I clung to writing the way like a drowning woman plant, you know, clings to a life preserver. Like I, I went in there and I was hanging, I was writing, I was working on a picture book, I was doing edits on a, on a novel, I was really trying to use the many hours when we were suddenly at home for creative purposes and just keep myself, to keep myself fed. But that, that ended up being harder and harder as time went on. And I can't tell you the number of friends I have, in Kidlet especially, who are struggling right now with you know, feeling depressed or, or feeling like, what to say? What to say to children through our work? Oh, that's so interesting. I had not thought of the sort of particular, peculiar challenge that this poses for children's writer, writers of children's literature. Um, yeah, you talked about light and I think hope and how um, much you need those things to be threads in the stories that you tell. Yeah, I, um, I and I have admired your turning to the page to um, write regardless or maybe because of these circumstances. Um, we're all finding our way through and it does seem to change by, if not the day, then the week or the month. Um, yeah. Well, and speaking of um, talking with kids, like how do you communicate with kids these days, you have been working, Meg, on this project where you're a contributor to this book, um, the title of which is The Talk. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this book. So um, it's an anthology, so I'm just a contributor in this, in this book. It, it's uh, published by Crown. And it's edited by this incredible um, couple, uh, Cheryl Willis Hudson and Wade Hudson. In children's publishing, they're, they're just legendary. They were working and creating imprints and creating opportunities for, <clears throat> excuse me, for um, black authors for years. I'm going to say from the 60s and 70s. That's, they um, have been publishers long before the major publishers had any interest. And um, this particular book is a follow-up um, to an anthology that they had, I think, two years ago. It's called We Will Rise. And it, it was, um, you know, there were stories basically of how we, how we resist, how we face really difficult things. And this one is called The Talk, Conversations About Race, Love, and Truth. And so, one of the when they approached me to be a contributor, I was thinking to myself because I'm I'm a very light skinned Latina, so it's not like I've ever sat down with my own son and said, "Listen, 
you know, if you're pulled over, this is going to happen. Because it's very likely that someone can pull over my son and not, and assume that he's a, a, a white kid, right? And an American, all-American white kid, whatever. And so I talked to them about it. I said, I, I haven't had the talk with my, with my children. And she, Cheryl asked me so many interesting questions. She said, well, what have you talked with your children? What have been the difficult conversations you've had with your children? Because we really don't want just the one talk that African-American families know by heart. We want all the talks that all folks from large grounds have with their kids. And so in this anthology, you have, um, you know, indigenous people. You have um, my pieces on on language, you know, there's, there's always there's always someone who wants you to speak English. Right? <laughs> they are yeah. deeply offended by your uh, use or your advocacy of Spanish. Um, so that notion of um, loving your language, the language of your mothers and grandmothers, and, and not being ashamed to speak it in public or know it or share your life through that avenue. Um, there are essays in here that one of the, my favorite is Adam Gidwitz, who's a white author who describes his grandfather's um, access to wealth and how that happened. So they're real, you know, they have the difficult conversations that really explore, in some ways, how we've gotten to where we are. That's so interesting. Um, I love what you're um, talking about language, and that made me realize that normally when we start our podcast, although there's never even a normal thing with, with us, Kristen, I think sometimes we <laughs> yeah. usually say it's the, it's the writer's story. And so I'm so curious, Meg, how you became a writer and what was your journey to writing and, you know, and how language, bilingual, being bilingual and all that stuff, is, is it all connected together for you? You know, it's really funny because I, I I was always drawn to English, to writing. I wanted to be a writer from, you know, certainly from my college days. But I had in mind, largely because of the literature that I had been raised on in, in schools and in, in college, that I, I needed to be vaguely British or something. <laughs> <laughs> I to have, you know, some, you know, lots of experience with Shakespeare. I needed to um, have a particular tone or sound. And I needed to be really, really great, you know, like the gigantic names in, in, in literature. And if I couldn't be that, then I wasn't going to be a writer. There was just nothing in between. It was this all or nothing kind of thing. So, you know, when I look back at very, very early work at college and things like that, I do sound strange. It doesn't sound anything like me. It's a very affected thing. So what ended up happening around the time that I was in college is that I, of course, started to become aware of the writers that hadn't been part of the high school camp, Sandra Cisneros and Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and then, and, and then others, more and more, writers who were speaking and writing the lives of people who were more similar to me. And so two things happened. The first thing was like, 
holy God, you know, this is fantastic. But the, the second thing was a sort of rage. Like, why was this kept from me? Why? For example, there is a book called Nilda. It's by Nicolas Amor. She's a Puerto Rican author in New York City writing in the 70s when I was a child. I was a, a you know, late, early teen in the 70s. And so why wasn't I introduced to this book, Nilda? It would have helped me understand so many things about my family, about community, about the impact of loss and immigration on a family, on a person, on a community. And um, so I, I started to have this, this thirst, really, and I started to explore that in my own work. I tried for a long time to do other things other than writing because, you know, it's very hard to go to your family, people who are struggling to, you know, pay rent and things like that and say, I think I will become an author. <laughs> because they don't want to hear that, right? They want to hear that you're going to have a job with benefits and you're not going to ask anybody for money later, right? <laughs> this is the thing. And so... You know, it felt pretense. It felt like writers went to really great universities and they came from very well-bred families who could talk about literature over a brandy. And my family was none of that. My mother worked in a factory. She'd been a teacher in Cuba. But, you know, nobody was discussing literature. Just it was completely foreign. Well, anyway, I, I started... Teaching, I, I did other things, and all of these other jobs, as it turned out, ended up pointing me in the direction of writing for children. Because I was a teacher for ten years, I wrote, you know, marketing materials for a while. I was a journalist for a while. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I was shifty. <laughs> I did all <laughs> kinds of things while my family waited for me to settle down, and then I just you know, decided, I, I had, I was just feeling so deeply unhappy, even though I had so many things to be happy about in my life, I had a stable family, I had children I loved, I had lots of things, but um, I wasn't doing the thing that I really wanted to do. I think that all those job things that you describe are really just gathering source material, right, for your future future books. <laughs> well, yeah, some of it's source material, and, and others are habits. So, for example, I had an editor who would read, like, a, a, a piece that I wrote, and and if Goretzky didn't like the first paragraph, like, you'd, you'd go up to him and say, hey, I gave you the story yesterday, any thoughts? And he'd look at you and say, no, because I stopped reading after the first graph. It was terrible. You have until 4 o'clock to get me a new one. You know, and so, like, you stop being precious about your words. Right? You, you learn that process taught me that there is a time when you can be very loving to your words and honor them and, you know, pet them. <laughs> and then, honey, you got to go at them. <laughs> you, you have to be ruthless. Um, and you have to put into your formula how it's landing on someone else. So there was that. When I taught, I learned the heart of children, really, again. 
And not only the sweet things about them, but really the awful, terrible things about them, too. You know, I taught high school for a while. And, you know, you, you teach high school and you watch some incredibly wonderful kids. And you also watch some bitter, horrible children move through that building um, and wreak havoc on others. So that became, for sure, became uh, source material. I don't know. I, and then marketing just surprisingly has helped me in the business of writing, something that I, I really hadn't expected that I needed to know so much about. But it turns out that that's really true. You need to know how to talk to people. You need to know how to present yourself and your work. You need to know, you know, what, what hums and what doesn't. You certainly have a good sensibility for all those things. I think sometimes, Meg, about the fact that your books have struck um, so many sort of, um, well, they, you found the resonances in um, like cultural concerns, issues, and addressed them um, through the grace, if I will use that word, of story. I wonder how you do that, or or do you think about like you've in your books you've tackled issues of bullying, of the loss of someone you love, of um, in being finding yourself in an environment uh, that, that you cannot control that's in which even the adults are fearful. How um, do you find those? Do those issues emerge out of? the characters you've already been thinking about, or do you, where does that fall in your process of developing the story? Yeah, well, so I think I write to make sense of what I live, right? I, I, I come to the, to the page sometimes, not saying, okay, today I'm going to unpack my 16th year. Um, it, it's not quite like that. But when I'm writing a character who's 15 or 17 or 12 or 9, whatever it is, I, I start by asking myself, well, what was bothering me then? And then I, I sort of amplify to questions like, who, what were the things that hurt me then, at that exact age? What lifted me? And then I go into the darker places, like, who specifically hurt me back then? Who specifically helped me? What are the things that, the, the images that I remember? And it, it really, if I ask you right now to sit down, and anyone who's listening, to sit down and, and think back to someone in your elementary school years who said something horrible to you, most people can say, oh my gosh, it was Teresa so-and-so, and she said I was blah, blah, blah. And they give it to you very exactly. And so I, I feel like memory, those things that claw into our memory, they're there for a reason. And the longer I sit with them and write them, the reason unfolds, like the, it, it unfolds because it taught me what, because it's revealing what about me or about people or about human beings, you know, like, what is it? So I, I, I come to it from a very personal um, and then fiction takes over. Then I'm changing species and, and settings and all kinds of things. But the, the truth 
has to be there. That that thing that upset me, or that thing that I'll never forget, or that feeling that I'll never forget. I mine it. I go back in there, and I um, I really look. So now that's the trick, though, right? To say you really look means you really have to look at it with all its ugliness and beauty. You have to be willing to do that. And some things are hard to do that with. Yeah. You know, that, that becomes the, the exhausting part of, of writing this way for kids. Yeah. Do you um, write, and I'm sorry, I haven't, I haven't read all of your books at this point, but do you write in the period where you grew up? Do you write today? I write both. I wrote, like, Burn, Baby, Burn is set in 1977 okay. in New York City, and I was 13 that year. So, 14 that year. And um, so, yeah, the, you know, a lot of memories about what it was like to walk around Queens with Son of Sam loose and, you know, the sound of of Dr. Schultz smacking the bottom of your feet and sunning in your hair and all that stuff. Like, because yeah, I'm so curious. I find it, I find it challenging to write set back in the past because it feels like you have to make sure you get certain details correct, and maybe you were a kid, so you weren't paying attention to everything, and so there's other things you, you feel like, oh, the, like the, maybe the 70s and 80s kind of blend a little in your mind, and then you're not totally sure, so you have to check all this stuff. But when you write today, do you feel that you have to go through a, a process of, like, hanging out with little kids or trying to listen to what they're doing? Because Not unless I want to get arrested. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> advocating here. <laughs> um, okay, here's the thing. But, but I, I find it very opaque because I'm yeah. telling me everything. Mm-hmm. Right? No, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. So here's the thing. So some truths about growing up are eternal. And I'm trying to write about those. The ones that transcend. Right? And then the rest is window dressing that you can kind of fix. But you have to be, I mean, you have to be observant. You have to be, you know, know, be aware of television shows and games and the way people communicate. I mean, you couldn't write a scene with teenagers at a pool listening to CDs, right? Because nobody's listening to CDs anymore, right? But if I said that to somebody who's maybe 10 years older than I am writing about teens, they'd go, oh, really? You know, like... (laughs) They, or, or the language, the vocabulary. Um, you have to have an ear for it. And so you do have to listen. You have to watch selectively. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, th- I suspect that it will get harder and harder for me as I you know, get older and move through my life. But I, I, right now, I feel like I can still do it. Sometimes I wonder how long I'll be able to that with YA literature, with teen literature, because, um, you know, that feels to me like the, every generation is only like four years. <laughs> it just changed so dramatically. So yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know how long I'll, I'll write comfortably in that space. But plenty of people do. And plenty of people will write, for example, historical fiction for YA 
is a is a good answer in that in that sense, right? Because you're still getting at team, but you can place it in a historical context that's perhaps easier for you to research and feel comfortable with. Yeah, but now that you're talking, I wonder if that's the um, the tendency for so many people to write fantasy YA. <laughs> I mean, I don't have to know anything about apps or cell phones. Cause, right. But here's a dragon. <laughs> and a vampire. But he better have the right kind of angst, that dragon. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, right. yeah, but you're talking about writing from authentic emotion rather than than stressing too much about, you know... You know, I'm writing about a phone and who, what kind of phone do they have and that kind of stuff. And I think that's great. I also um, was also thinking about when you were talking about one of the things I was reading the other day. And I was just telling Kristen, I've been just doing that thing where you're trying to revise. And so you end up reading a lot, you know, and to avoid revising. But it's also <laughs> feeding your revision. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. And they talked about the more specific you get, the more universal things. That's true. And I, I thought that was, that is such good thing, it's such good advice to give a writer. And I think that, you know, what, when I was reading, um, reading your work, the, the specific ways you talked about a child and her relationship with her grandmother made it very universal to me. Like, I understood that emotion. Now, yeah. She's not like my grandmother was, but she's a grandmother and it's granddaughter and it's and they have this love for each other. And so I thought that was just really wonderful and, and how, um, yeah. And then I was just also thinking that you're first, what you're starting off talking about being frustrated as a kid because you didn't have access to all these books and it's such a good argument for having, um, you know, publishing, blow the doors open. Yeah. And yeah. all these voices. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they have a long way to go, but I think, you know, there's certainly a lot of interest in that now. The question is, you know, will that sustain? I hope so. But, yeah, I, I completely agree that the specific is the universal, and I think the beautiful part of that also is that with kids in particular, they can read about someone who's Pakistani, who's from Vietnam, who's African-American, who's Latino, whatever, and find that connection. And I think what it breeds inside kids is a feeling of connection to other people rather than othering. <laughs> and that's what we want, right? We want people to be able to live alongside each other and understand each other and respect each other with all of the specific differences. It's all cool. Because we love our families. Because we want to grow up. Because... We have hopes and dreams, like those, those kinds of things. That, that's the most exciting thing for me when I see kids reading broadly or when I see teachers and librarians sort of encouraging kids to um, read way outside of their experience. I think in some way it's outside of their experience, and in another way it's going to cycle them right back to their own experience. And that's a beautiful thing. Well, it makes us more human, and it makes us. Um, you know, obviously, I think that a huge issue that we're having as a as a country is whether or not um, we want to be a monoculture or we want to be multicultural. And I mean, I, I know that's I know that's 
being rather, <laughs> but to me, that's a huge issue. I mean, to have some people stand up and say, I want you to only speak English. I want you to only do this. And if you don't look like this, I don't want you to be here. I mean, that kind of stuff. Right. Or you're lucky to be here. You're lucky we let you be here. Yeah. Be it's so, it's, or we can still send you back, you know, or whatever. I mean, it's so frustrating because it goes against what I thought we had all kind of agreed on. And, <laughs> As everyone said, you know, fascism, we already had this fight. <laughs> what are we doing this again for? Um, so I, I think it's just such, it's such a, um, and it's almost, I feel like that's some of the frustration I have. It's like, how can you even have a discussion if, if one side is saying this person shouldn't even exist? Because that's not, that's not no longer, that's just not, I, I, I just find it so interesting because I would love for us to say, yes, after November 5th or whatever, let's all join hands and become a nation again. And I wonder if we're going to be able to do that or do we have to go through some really powerful reckoning? And You don't have to answer that question because it's 2020. And it's- <laughs> yeah, I'm writing notes trying to think what I'm going to say. I'm, I don't know. I, I don't think anybody's going to go easily. Yeah. But yeah. I love what you said, Meg, about the, um, the gift that literature read across cultures can give us in terms of reminding us that at the end of the day, there really isn't the other. That, at, that when we scratch the, below the surface of it, the other is really me. Um, they have maybe different color skin, or they um, spoke a different language, but they want to be healthy. They want to be loved. They want to be able to provide the things that are good and um, life-giving to the people that they love. And so I, I hadn't really thought about it in those ways before until you were talking, Meg, about this um, literature for children that invites a kid to assume the experience of someone who is ostensibly the other um, and how then that reminds us of our common are, uh, what's common. So I don't know if there is an, a, a kind of answer or some, something in that for our time, but it's certainly worth contemplating. Um, yeah. I, I know. I think you're right. Um, I, I just think now, if, if we've ever needed excellent librarians oh. <laughs> and an excellent and a really super book culture it would be now yeah it would be now whether it's helping us ferret out facts and fiction whether it's uh, helping us understand history our own history as a country as the world's history or you know how just what we're describing here you know the stories of people um, I really feel like a good librarian in the life of a child, and a good librarian in the life of a community, in the scope of a community, is is just essential. You're so here. Yeah, I think so. So I know, Meg, that you have another meeting. 
after your conversation I with I us. So I, I do. I have it in 15 minutes. I have. Um, I sit on the equity committee, equity and inclusion committee of the Society of for <laughs> SCBWI, Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And so that subcommittee is just we basically just sort of are a think tank in terms of how we make an organization that's 50 years old at CBWI that's been part of how publishing has proceeded, which is for children's publishing, you know, very centered on the white child and the monolingual reader and all of that. How do we make that organization relevant to, to children now? And what do we want the next 50 years to be? And how do we serve new writers um, through, through the programming? So it's exciting stuff. Hiring sometimes. <laughs> no, it's brain buster. It's a brain buster. But um, I'm on there with really good people. Um, so I feel it's always a pleasure to have my brain busted with them. Thank you for volunteering to do that work. I know it can be really exhausting and a lot is being asked of people and um, you know I have watched sort of you know RWA <laughs> from you know from oh my their, you know um, you know collapse and burn and and just just thinking gosh you know a little bit of work beforehand maybe could have prevented this but maybe not I think we're well, going to deal with older organizations are they are they meeting the needs of the next generation we can't just say here's this thing we built you want into this one door it's already furnished and you can't make anything around I, so, it's like living in your grandmother's house forever <laughs> <laughs> and you can't move a single doily but you know but it but we're but even weirder it's maybe like walking into some you know older white lady's house <laughs> in milwaukee I, I don't know i don't know i'm just trying to think milwaukee yeah. yeah no i don't know i'm just making it up i'm making it up as i go we can pick a different place but you know what i'm saying where everything is away and you're like people uh, you know or uh, have you ever have you ever been in anybody's house where they don't have books it's yeah. a creepy, creepy really thing. Really and then you're terrible. like, then you get very like sort of concerned. Like, did they hide their books? Wait, <laughs> they <laughs> they are they out back in the shed? How do they not have books? <laughs> this, the only saving, the only saving grace is if there's a stack of library books on the kitchen table. I'll take those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that means that they're human. I mean, you know, libraries are the best. I learned, I've found all my favorite writers at the library. Yeah, and I a mean, good library. I read um, Western civilization <laughs> all the time. That's what my mother taught. But you know what I mean? Like you, We had tons of books, but they weren't always what I wanted. And a library gave you a chance to go find something on the shelves that resonated with you. Nobody else picked it for you, and no one gave you this book and said, read it it's good for you like it's good for you you got to pick whatever you wanted you know and that was just yeah we would come back with that, you know? that was yeah. really, really fun. i had a library card to the mccormick branch at the queen's library and we had an uh, the world book encyclopedia my mother bought that on um installment and you'd get a new volume every year that updated everything and my poor mom 
you know, when she was moving from Florida in 2005, it was time to let go of the encyclopedia. And she was like, but look, I had, it gave me a new book every year. And she would point, it was already 10 years old. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even begin to describe to her all that had changed, all that had changed. You know, my mother didn't even know how to type. You know, she, she stopped her technology understanding stopped way earlier than, than, than most. But anyway, I, I have had that experience of going to people's houses and not seeing books. And interestingly, I've had, you know, lots of people come um, and they'll come to my house and, and the first thing they'll say is, there's a lot of books. <laughs> and it's true. Every room has them. Well, um, and I don't know, you know, you were talking a little bit about the culture you grew up in, and I think that what's interesting to me is a lot of people um, become writers, not necessarily having books in their house, but having storytellers. Yes. Sure. And I was wondering if that was, that was true for you. Did you have a storytelling tradition in your family? Did I have storytelling books? Yes. Yes. <laughs> They were, they would never have called themselves cuentistas, right, storytellers, but there wasn't a story they could tell without drama. And the queen was Abuela Vena, my grandmother, because she knew how to tell a story, whether it was about rolling cigars or the kid that got bitten by a pig in her yard or like any kind of story. And she would just, just with drama, she only went to, to, the eighth grade, my grandmother. So she wasn't, she could read, but she wasn't as illiterate or anything like that. But boy, could she tell a story. And I, my family also told story, I think, as a way to deal with trauma, right? They had left Cuba, um, you know, due to the political situation and so on. And there was just a lot of loss of family, of their lives, their livelihoods, their careers, all of that. And so they told stories. Story, I think to remind themselves who they had been, to connect me to a path, right, that we shared. And, you know, every telling sort of became more fantastical, right? Uh, in Cuba, the mangoes are bigger, the chickens taste better, the ni- people are nicer, women are beautiful, you know, you know. And so it was stuff like that. And it was just and my grandmother had no filter. She would tell me the most salty, sordid tale, you know, that, that that no American mother would tell their kids. And I would just sit there going, and then he ran off with that woman, you know, and I was five, you know, stuff like that. So it, it just gave me an ear. It gave me an ear. And I love, love storytelling. I love listening to storytelling, you know, the moth, and all of those things. I, I just... Well, it really, I mean, your voice comes through so strongly in your writing. And, and, I, and I think that that's just, it just, it just reminds me, I, I think for a, lot, for a long time I used to talk about how um, there just seems to be certain cultures that birth writers, and the South seems to be one that's very high up there and I think it's a similar thing where there's a lot of sitting on a porch and everyone listens to a story yeah. and someone yeah you know just like you're talking about embroidering the story making it like all these details oh I forgot to tell you all these details before or it just occurred to me that it was much better with all these details <laughs> there's a warmth 
to it often. Yeah. It's about connection, right? It's yeah. about connection and entertainment and it's just such a loving act sharing a story. It's yeah. a loving act. It's a, it's like love for people. That's the best way I could describe it anyway. Yeah. Well, that's a great note on which to end so that you get a chance, Meg, to get to your meeting. We so appreciate your taking the time to talk with us, spend some time here. Many, many thanks. Oh, my pleasure. It's it was just, so great to meet you. you. Maybe I'll get to see you in person someday. In yes, 2021. Come on. Yes. <laughs> Yes, and, and don't forget oh, to yes, tell yes. Your, your listeners that I have two copies to give away of the talk. So, yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. And um, yes, it was so wonderful to talk with you and hear more about your story. Welcome, ladies. I'll talk to you soon. Well, that was just so much fun. Um, oh, she's like, you, you knew um, each other in Richmond. Yes, we have we have known each other for I don't know how many years and have been gathering regularly with a small group of other Richmond writers for what's almost 10 years probably gathering monthly. So I have had the honor of sitting at table with Meg. I always learn something. Um, I hope that listeners now might um, look up her talk for um, the acceptance speech for the Newberry Medal, she talks about something called clave, and um, it's a kind of rhythm inside the individual that Meredith, you talked about her voice and how clear her authorial voice is, and I think it relates to that. So anyway, I urge folks to have a listen well, to that. that. I mean, and I'm, I love that we did talk. We talked about voice in a couple of different ways. We talked about language and being bilingual. We talked about, um, but she also talked about thinking that when she wanted to write, that she had to sound like someone different. Yes. Which I thought was so interesting. And I think that's, I think that's a mistake a lot of people make when they start off. They have a view that writing um, is, formal and needs to be done with a certain voice yes and and they don't and hopefully what happens in that journey is that they find a way to become a much more authentic authentically themselves and sound like someone you I mean because I just think that when I read her writing yeah not only had the rhythm um but it also um you know, it just felt so much like there was someone there, you know, the personalities coming through. and, and Yes, a real warm-blooded, true, three-dimensional human being. Yes. Yeah, yeah, beautiful stuff. And, um, oh, it's always good to be reminded of how valuable storytelling is. What are you thinking? Right, and I think, yeah, I think we have universal experiences as writers, um, but then we have very specific challenges, um, you know, and stories to tell, and that's, I think both of those things are really, really, really interesting and always teach me. Well, I am excited to hear the next 
step stages, developments, and revelations in your um, process here? That desire line, the character's yes, flaws, you've got anything? Yes, the painful um, process continues. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, as I said, I do feel like I'm getting more there, <laughs> wherever there is, getting more there. Um, and I'm really looking forward to, we, we have never um, had so many guests lined up officially on our podcast. I think we've always been a little reluctant to get too far ahead of ourselves. But this fall, I guess with all everyone socially distancing and also friends just being so prolific and getting published quite a bit, we've got some exciting guests this fall. And I'll just mention that Ed Ivar is coming next month. And um, publishing as E.A. Barris, right? And I'm going to talk to him a little bit about that. Um, this just sort of popped up that he had a, a new um, pseudonym for this book, and I'd love to hear about that process. I think I always thought pseudonyms were so interesting. When I published my first book, by golly, it was going to be under my name. <laughs> 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 but I'm always very interested when you write outside of a genre, w- whether or not it's the advice is to publish under a different name or not. I'm very um, excited to talk to him about yeah, that. So I'd love to talk yeah. to him. He's also um, someone I've known for years and just a hilarious person who has taken sort of a past with stand-up and turned it into um, a way to nourish the careers of his fellow authors by hosting Noir at the Bar in Washington, D.C. And he was literally doing this like every couple weeks. And each time he did it, it was to support a different independent bookstore. It was just such a great um, community building um, event. I don't know how he found time to write a book with all that going on. So anyway, I'm looking forward to talking to him. And I know you've got somebody exciting for November, too. Everyone can just Stay tuned to find out who that is, and um, I'm interested to hear how your book is coming along. I know it's in the baby book stages, and maybe you don't feel like you can talk about any details. I am I am laying down the bricks of the words. I have a I set myself a word count goal for each day, and the first week I immediately fell short of it within the first few days. And so then on the fourth day, which happened to be the Friday, I just um, put my feet to the fire and I'm thrilled to say I was able to get myself back to that week's end goal anyway. And so we, so far so good this week and, and on we go. But yeah, it's, it is generating that shitty first draft um, that I'm, I'm shooting for, but it is fun. I, I love I actually really love this stage. It's uh, there's so much discovery that happens. As I mentioned, I, I laid out so much in advance, or I thought a lot about structure and the way the book would be organized. A lot about the characters in advance, but still, I, it never it never ceases to surprise me what happens anyway, <laughs> what they go off and do and say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and to, it's sort of yeah, it's sort of getting into a a car that you think maybe you're driving, but then you realize that you maybe someone else is steering. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were going north, and now I'm in Louisiana, but okay. Yeah, yeah. 
but um, it sure is pretty down here. <laughs> it's really um, <laughs> explore and see if it's worth being here. And then to just know that, yeah, it has to come out later and, and yes. you're finding a way into your story. I think it's, to me, it's utterly impossible. I cannot imagine um, writing a writing out a book and then writing the book exactly the way I had written it. I would be too bored, I think. I, I would well, I feel like I'd... I don't think you really can do it. I mean, maybe, yeah. Yeah, 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 I don't know. Yeah, I certainly can't. Because it, maybe once I've written 50 books. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, I mean, some of the motivation to write is, I think, that... Discovery. That what's going to happen next um, yeah. feeling. Yeah. yeah. But I have also found that the work that you have done before is incredibly useful in yeah. terms of making it so that you will probably end up with a fairly decent first draft that you can craft into something else later. Um, and if you hadn't done that work, you might have crashed and burned at page 60 or yeah. ended up a lot and, to throw out. And it does provide me milestones that sort of keep me... Um, honest, but also not just that, I guess, that that help me, um, they're like mini goals, if you will, and I, so I feel like a certain, and it's not, a certain thing has to happen by X number of words, and I can see how, in general, to get there, and so the getting there is the surprise, but I still feel like, oh good, okay, I'm at about this point, and this, now this thing can happen. Um, whatever it needs to be in order to move the story into the next sort of major iteration. I'm just speaking generally here because, yeah, I am not yet comfortable describing it. I, I may yeah. hold this one close to the chest, not because I fear that anyone's going to take it, but because I fear... I'm still finding it. Yeah, I'm still finding it. And also I've discovered that if I talk too much about something... I am less, it's like spelling out every detail of a story. I'm less inclined to actually write the story. Oh, wow. The satisfaction of telling it is done. <laughs> so I need to not tell it in order to actually tell it. Yeah. That's so great. Wow. Uh, well, so good to see you. Here we are with a little bit of audio, I mean, video action. But just to hear your voice, Meredith, is always a treat for me. And oh, it's great to hang out with you. And keep writing. And... Hopefully, well, the, the, the September will, you know, continue to be beautiful yeah. from our, from our locked-in um, homes, and, um, and hopefully, yes, brighter days are ahead for all of us and our country. Here, here, yeah. So. Well, take good care, and thanks, you thanks. listeners, for, oh, for listening, and yes, Meg noted, and we want to be sure you know about the free copies of the talk that Meg has generously offered to provide to lucky listeners. So um, we are, we'll be happy to pass those along. Meredith, how should we do that? Oops, are you there? Yeah, I'm not, you can stop recording. <laughs> <laughs>